0: of elders, that that God has graciously given to the church elders because there are dangers and trials and challenges, and there's a need for those to come alongside and shepherd and encourage and instruct the flock. So he looked at that in Acts chapter 20, and then a few weeks ago, we talked about the qualifications of an elder, the character that an elder must have, and then last Sunday, uh, he talked about the training or the preparation of an elder. Uh, That that is needed in 1st Timothy chapter 4 and today we're going to talk about the motivations of an elder What are the right motivations an elder ought to have in light of the time in which we live? Chapter 5 verse 1 Let's stand as we read God's word in honor of his word Uh, That's our passion our desire today So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words. We thank you, God, for uh, giving, that you have given to us the very words breathed out by you to us to instruct us, to encourage us, to teach us. You ultimately, God, are our shepherd. You're the one who nurtures and feeds and leads us. And God, we want to submit ourselves to you and to your authority. And that means submitting ourselves to your word. And so God, I pray that your word today would strengthen us, would convict us of sin, would call us continually to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so would you build up your body today through these words in 1 Peter 5. And we ask this and pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The context of 1 Peter chapter 5 is found in chapter 4, verse 19, and in what follows, where in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, he talks about, he says, Therefore, having just talked about suffering and trials, which these Christians were going through when this letter was written, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so he's just talked about suffering and trials and challenges, and he's saying, Commit yourself to God. And then he turns and says, So I exhort the elders among you. He gives this exhortation to the leaders, and he's writing this letter and saying these words to these elders, these overseers, these shepherds of a variety of churches scattered throughout Asia Minor that he mentions in chapter 1, Cappadocia and Bithynia and Galatia and all these different places. And he's, he speaks specifically about these elders who, in light of the suffering and trials that the believers are facing, he gives them this urgent exhortation to shepherd the flock, Be shepherds, shepherd the flock that is among you. And so Peter, in essence, he introduces himself, first of all, in verse 1, as a fellow elder. He says, as a fellow elder, I'm among you, as he speaks to these elders, I'm one of you. I'm also charged with overseeing the church. And then he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, Peter is no stranger to suffering himself. In fact, this was written right before he's about to die for his faith. And so Peter understands the suffering that these Christians are going through. And so he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a fellow elder, but then also as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He, he puts himself also as a sheep. He says, I'm also among you. I am also one who will partake of the salvation that has been purchased, of the glory that's going to be revealed in that day when Jesus comes. And in light of that, he says, all right, shepherd the flock that is among you. Shepherd the flock. It's an exhortation. He's saying it with emphasis and almost with a sense of urgency. Like he, he wants to sort of say to them, you need to shepherd the flock. It is an urgent thing. It is a crucial thing. It's important for this body of believers who are going through sufferings and trials and therefore faced with many temptations that you do your job, that you shepherd the flock. But he's not just talking about any kind of shepherding here. There is a particular motivation that true shepherds of Jesus' flock are supposed to have. And Jesus ultimately is the example of, of what it means to be the good shepherd, to be a right shepherd. And Jesus said in John 10 verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is what Peter has in mind, no doubt, when he talks to these elders and shepherds of Jesus' flock. The good shepherd, a good shepherd, one who is after the heart of Christ, is a shepherd who willingly lays down his life for the sheep, has the best interest of the sheep in mind. And so Peter then goes on in these few verses to then describe the kind of motivations that a shepherd over God's flock ought to have. And so he's going to do this by comparing and contrasting uh, motivations in these next few verses. And so he says, and elders, they should exercise oversight over the flock. And here's the motivations that they should have. Not because they have to, but because they want to. Or in verse 2 he says, not under compulsion, but willingly. A person who, this word compulsion means a person who's been forced to do it, a person who has to do it. I imagine a shepherd, if we were to just picture today in our minds, in the backdrop of this, is the idea of a a shepherd. There's a, a master. He owns lots of sheep, and he has these shepherds that go out, and they're supposed to take care of the flock, and he comes to his shepherd, and he says, I want you to go out, and I want you to care for the flock, I want you to take care of them. Make sure they're fed and make sure they're watered. Make sure they stay together, that they don't fall into all kinds of dangers and wander off and, and become prey to all the predators that are out there. And when the, and when the bear and the lion and the wolf comes, I want, you to, I want you to do whatever it takes to protect the flock. And can you imagine the, uh, the shepherd going, I don't want to go out. I don't want to do this. Like, I want to stay home. I want to play Xbox. I want to, well, that wouldn't have been back then. <laughs> I want to watch football, right? I got other stuff I want to do. I want to sleep in my own bed. And the sh- and the master says, "No, you need to shepherd the flock." And so you can imagine the shepherd going out, kicking the rocks. He's ticked off. He's like, "Okay, fine. I'll go do it." Now the shepherd with that kind of a heart who goes out to take care of the sheep, when the dangers come, do you think that shepherd is going to put his life on the line for the sheep? Absolutely not. And this is what Peter's talking about. It's not just any old shepherding that can happen. He says, I I don't want shepherds to be those who do it because they have to do it. Because those shepherds will not actually look after the flock. He says, but need to be willing to do it. They want to do it. The the, the motivation that a true shepherd of God who who is after the heart of Christ has is one who willingly does it. He's eager to do it. He has the heart of Christ. What did Jesus say in John 10? verse 18, he says, no one takes my life from me. No, he says, I lay it down of my own accord. That's the heart of Jesus, right? He willingly gave up his life. No one forced it from him. He made it clear, I am willing to give my life for the sake of the sheep. This is the motivation that Peter says a true shepherd, elder of God's flock ought to have. They're willing to give their life, to put themselves in harm's way to care for and protect the sheep. Secondly, he says, an an elder or overseer ought to uh, oversee the flock, not for shameful gain, not for shameful or greedy gain, but eagerly. Um, I think there's two things probably in mind here. One is uh, in, in the New Testament, Paul talks a lot about elders and shepherds who make their living through the gospel. Pastors who shepherd churches that, that, that earn a living, that are paid to do this. This is their life, and they're devoted to it. And there are those shepherds who, simply for greedy gain, they're looking out for themselves. They do it simply for the money. They're just greedy to get more and more. They don't care anything about the flock, but it's greedy gain. It's what I can get out of it. And there are a lot of shepherds out there just like that, that it's all about the money. It's all about what they can get for themselves. But even more than that, it's not just a monetary thing, I think, that's in mind here, but a, pers- a shepherd who is out to do this job, this task of shepherding, simply for gain, what they can get for themselves, may also be uh, because it's, uh, it's good for their reputation. Uh, where I come from, I come from small towns. And it's often common in small towns for someone to be on all kinds of different boards in order to, uh, because it's good for their persona, it's good for their reputation. And so to be able to say in the town of 3,000 that I moved here from, to be able to say, hey, I'm the, I've got this business. I'm a, I'm a reputable business owner. I'm on the school board, and I'm also on the church board. And it can become this thing of what I can get out of it. It, it helps my business. It helps my bottom line. It, it builds me up. It gives me a good reputation. And there are shepherds who could simply oversee the flock for those kinds of reasons. Now, when the, the dangers come, When the shepherd has to step up and protect the flock at the cost of his life, at the cost of his reputation, is that shepherd going to stand and protect the sheep? Absolutely not, right? Because it's not about the sheep, it's about themselves. It's about what they can get. And the moment in which what they want for themselves is threatened, they run. They leave the sheep vulnerable. He says, don't don't shepherd my flock for greedy or shameful gain. He says, but do it eagerly. This word eager, it almost sounds a little bit like the first one, willing, but the word eager actually comes, it's almost like an intensification of the first one. Not only need does the shepherd need to be willing, but he says they need to be eager to do it. They're, it comes with a sense of excitement and joy. Like they, are, they not only want to, but they're excited to shepherd the flock. Now, think about this. This may sound strange. They're excited to put themselves in harm's way to do whatever it takes to protect the flock of God. That, That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? They're excited to put themselves in harm's way. They're excited to to put themselves in a place where they could lose their reputation, they could lose their job, they could lose their life for the sake of the sheep. Those two things don't sound right, do they? Or do they? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, what does it say about Jesus? It said, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, He went to the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Joy and the cross? That doesn't sound right, does it? No. But Jesus had the big picture in mind. He understood what the goal was. He saw the reward that we're going to speak of in a minute, and so he could for the joy, not the joy of suffering, but for the joy of doing the will of his Father, the joy of and, And the shepherd who has the right heart is eager to do whatever it takes to protect the flock, to care for the body of Christ. Third, he says, a shepherd should not be domineering, but should set an example for the flock. They should not be domineering. In other words, a shepherd, a true shepherd with the heart of Christ isn't one who simply barks out orders and gets everybody to do what they say. The the mission of this church, which is the mission of every church, is to make disciples who make disciples. Now, Pastor Nick could stand up here and say, listen, folks, you need to be making disciples. What's wrong with you? Get after it. What is your problem? Jesus said, make disciples, right? Why aren't you doing it, man? What about you? What about you? Come on, get after it. (laughs) And then you can go home, chill out, watch the game hang out each week, you know, drink some coffee. That's not what a shepherd does. A shepherd stands before his flock. He opens up the word of God. He teaches and instructs the congregation. And then he goes and he does it himself so that the flock can see what it looks like to to make disciples. I had a rule in my ministry life over the last 20 years to say, Uh, to my elders, don't ever ask the congregation to do something that you are not already doing yourself or you're willing to do with them. If you're going to ask the sheep, if you're going to ask the believers to be generous, then you better already be generous with your life and your funds. If you're going to ask the congregation to make disciples, then the congregation should be able to see in your life what it looks like to live a life that makes disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It should be evident and this is, this is what he's saying, don't be domineering, don't just bark out orders and have people do what we want them to do, but no, there's one mission, it's Jesus' mission, and that's what we're about, and the true shepherd of God's flock leads, is out in front of the congregation, showing them an example of what it looks like to shepherd Jesus' flock. Isn't this what Jesus did? He said, I did not come to be served in Mark 10, 45, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 13, that great passage where he, Jesus, takes up the basin and the towel himself. And he wraps around, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And they're just blown away by this. They can't figure out, this, is, this doesn't seem right. And Peter has his little moment, right? And then Jesus gets done and he says, now go and do likewise. What I've shown you here in this moment of getting on my knees and washing feet, I want you to go do that now. Jesus didn't simply tell them, wash feet. He did tell them that, but he did it also by showing them an example of what it looks like. And that's what the shepherd does. And the last motivation that he speaks here in 1 Peter 5 is he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. In other words, the motivation of the shepherds of God's flock is one of an eternal reward. Rewards are kind of a funny thing to us as Christians. I think sometimes we think we shouldn't do things just for a reward, right? We think that with our kids, right? They should just do it because they want to do it. It shouldn't be because I'm going to buy them a candy bar afterwards, right? That's what we think, right? And that sounds right. And there is something about that. But do you know that the Bible is filled with rewards? And in fact, it even says that you and I should live our lives for the sake of gaining the prize. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And what does he tell them? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Don't run to not get the prize. Like you should actually run your life, you should live your life in such a way as to get the prize. Live in such a way for the sake of the prize. The Bible tells us that we will one day when Christ appears, we will be rewarded. And we should live our life. Not in terms of what we get down here, greedy gain, pats on the back. No, he says we should live our life and the elders of God's church should live their lives for the sake of the reward. Isn't this what Jesus did? The joy set before him, he endured the cross. He looked forward to the glory that the Father would get and the benefit to the sheep by laying down his life. He did it for the sake of the Father. He did it for the sake of the reward, for what it would accomplish. And we too, right shepherds with the right heart, ought to, to live their lives with this promise and do it for the sake, shepherd the flock for the sake of the reward. He says they will receive, particularly an unfading Crown of glory, and so we do it for the sake of that prize. We know one day—I don't know how to even describe what that will be. We know one day. We know what it will be. In this sense, we know that we will be able to be with Jesus face to face. Right? There's no better reward than that. But somehow, there's even more. I don't know. There's an unfading crown of glory that we will get. Those who shepherd Jesus's flock well. And so we should live our lives, not for the reward here on this earth, but we should live our lives for the blessing that will one day come when we stand face to face with our Lord and Savior, and he says, well done, good and faithful servants. That's what we live for. We look forward to that. So, in light of that, that those are the motivations that an elder, a shepherd who oversees Jesus' flock ought to have. Now, let me just turn for a moment. Let's take a shift. And let me just show you what that actually looks like, right? Instead of just saying, here's here's the heart motivation a person should have, but let's just look into the book of 1 Peter and let's see what this actually looks like in people's lives, in the midst of real suffering, and then also make the connection. What does this look like for us? How does shepherding the flock actually play out? on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis in the life of Jesus' church? And why is it so important that we have shepherds who are willing to put their life on the line for the sake of the sheep? Why is this so very crucial? Well, in this culture, in this time in which Peter writes this letter, and to the people he writes it to, just imagine for a moment the trials that they are facing. They, the, the culture that they became Christians in was a culture that was completely shaped around the worship of the Greek gods. The the culture, their worship of these gods, their bowing down to these gods, it it was a part of their family life. It was a part of their meals that they ate. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 had to talk about meat sacrificed to idols because even the meals at certain times of the year that they ate in their families was was wrapped up in worship to these gods. not, Not only was their family life, but their social life the, the worship of these Greek gods that these people lived in was wrapped up in these, these drunken, sensual parties that they had, and it was actually done as a means of worship and honor to these gods. So their social life was a part of worshiping these gods and paying homage. Their entertainment and sports was a part of worship. The, in those days, they had the, the Olympic-style games that they did in Ephesus, and they did it in honor and in worship to the goddess Artemis. Artemis. In fact, the temple of Artemis is located in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and it is one of the seven wonders of the world. And and so they would do this in worship. Their sport was even a part of their worship. Their work and their business was a part of worship. They had what was called kind of like modern-day unions, but they had these things called trade guilds, and they were formed and and fashioned in such a way as to be an aspect of worship and honor to appease the Greek gods in their culture. And so even their work was a part of these gods, and not only that, but the government. The phrase of the day was, Caesar is Lord, right? That means that Caesar in their day when you, you had certain times and certain ways that you had to pay homage to the, to the Caesar, to the emperor in Rome, and you would, you would declare that he is Lord, meaning you would declare that he has all authority. That's what that means. He has imperium is the word. What he says is law. What he says goes. And imagine in that culture in which every single aspect of their lives is wrapped up in worship to these gods and they even had to pay honor to Caesar, all of a sudden you have these people believing the gospel, becoming Christians, and declaring Jesus is Lord. And this is why Paul actually, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul makes that crazy statement where he says, and no one can say Lord, Lord, or Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit of God. When you and I read that, I don't know, when I've read that over the years, I thought, it doesn't really make sense. Like, what's the big deal? Like, people can say Jesus is Lord and not have the Spirit at all, right? We could say that. That's possible, right? Paul, but Paul has in mind this culture in which Caesar is Lord, and so for a Christian to come and not be able to pay homage to Caesar, but to say, Jesus is Lord, Well, that puts you in serious danger of your life, and so that's why he's saying only those who truly have the Spirit of God will declare, at least in public, that Jesus is Lord because it's putting their life on the line. This is the culture that they're in, and at this very time in AD 64 when this letter is written, the persecution and the intensification is is heightened. Because of several events that Nero, who was the leader at that time, did. Including, if you know some history, burning down Rome. Uh, And he blamed it on the Christians. And so there was all kinds of heightened uh, persecution that was coming to Christians. But it wasn't so much physical necessarily. It was the same kind of persecution you and I have. You see, when every aspect of their lives was wrapped up in the worship to these gods. And now as Christians, they were seen as being completely antisocial. They were being seen as hating their families because they couldn't participate in the things that their families were doing. They were seen as, as being haters of their friends and their neighbors. They were seen as antisocial. They were seen as menaces to society. The, the historian Tacitus back in that day wrote that Christians were haters of mankind and menaces to society because they disrupted the life of the culture, they did not participate in the life of the culture, they could not. And so they found themselves being ostracized, they were in fact considered to be unpatriotic because they did not pay homage to Caesar. And so the result was that they were being insulted, abused, rejected, shamed, they were being lied about and slandered, they faced the loss of property, the loss of employment, which led to all kinds of economic hardship, they were no longer welcome in their communities. This was a serious thing and so what kind of temptation do you think those christians faced in their faith as new christians (laughs) a lot right hence the reason why the church is so crucial to to the sheep why it is so crucial that the church come around These believers and care for them. Why it is so crucial that there are shepherds. It is in light of that that Peter is saying to the elders, Shepherd the flock. It is crucial. Their very life depends on it. Because these Christians were facing several temptations, and I listed them in your bulletin there. And so let's just look for a moment at how Peter demonstrates to these elders in these churches how they should shepherd the church in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulties. Let's look for a moment. So, First of all, when they were facing these temptations, they no doubt from what Peter writes, we can, we can see that they were tempted to forget who they were, just like you and I. When we face these pressures and, and these, when everything seems to be bearing down on us and we seem to be ostracized from our own society, we, there's this temptation to forget who we are. And so what does Peter say right from the start? He reminds them in verse one that they are exiles. They're exiles. He reminds them again in chapter 2 where he says that they were those who were aliens and strangers in a foreign land. In other words, as a Christian, this world in which those Christians found themselves and you find yourself in, this is not our home. We should not feel at home in this place. We should feel awed. And so, so Peter is reminding them, it's a, if you feel weird in relation to your family now, in relation to your job, in relation to your work, if you feel a bit weird and feel a little bit like you're on the outside, that's because you are. It's because you are. You're in exile. This is not your home. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven where we await a Savior from there, right? And so... And so I urge even us, so, so what does Peter say then? He reminds them, you're exiles, you're strangers, you're aliens, you're sojourners. This is what you are in Christ. And that's why we need each other as exiles and strangers and aliens, right? But then he reminds them, you are those, in first one, chapter one, verse three, you are those who've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that you are those who have an inheritance that is, that is kept by God's power through a faith such a great salvation right this is who you are and he reminds them of this over and over again through this thing he says stand firm in this know who you are you're strangers and so if you feel weird as you sit around the break room at your workplace and there's conversations that go on and you feel like this is you feel strange you don't know what to do you feel awkward good praise God because if you don't feel weird in this culture in which you live then maybe, maybe your faith in Christ is not real. You should feel like an exile. And this is what Peter wants them to know. It's not strange. You should feel that way. They were tempted, just like we are, to revert back to their old habits and their old ways of life. Can you imagine the pressure that they felt being ostracized from their families and their workplace and their communities? They f- and they would feel this pressure. Can you imagine their family members coming to them and going, come on, Chris, just... You know, just this once. Just go along. Like quit being so obstinate. Right? Just just go along. Just come. Hey, come on. We're, we're all gonna go down, you know, and we're gonna we're gonna have a good time tonight over here. Like come, just come on, you know? Just this one time, just quit quit being such a pain. I remember when I became a Christian as an 18-year-old young man, I remember many of my friends saying to me, Here, you you should come to our church because we don't have to take it that serious. Right? Right? you should come with us, like, what what is wrong with you, they would say, come on, just come with us, Chris, what's going on, and I would say, no, I I can't, you don't understand, I hate those things, I don't want anything to do with those things, and and can you imagine the pressure, so we're tempted, however, I remember the intense temptation in my life to revert back to my old ways, instantly, I wanted to, you wanna go, go along to get along, right? You don't want to be weird. None of us like to be weird or be on the outside. We want to be a part of it, right? We, we, and when your friends and your buddies, they're, they're, they're wanting to do things, and you say, no, I can't. And so Peter says to them in verse 114, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back. Formerly, that's the way you thought, but now you have been rescued from that. You have been, you have been saved As to you've been made holy. And so he says there in verse 15, so be holy in all of your conduct. Because God has saved you out of darkness. Don't go back to the darkness. Be holy in every aspect of your life. This is how Paul. Now, I want you to understand this is not a popular message. (laughs) Just in case you think that it's easy to shepherd. Imagine, imagine the sheep and there's someone going astray and they're starting to revert back. This is the picture of shepherding the flock, right? We have this group of sheep, they're all together, but one starts wandering off. They start going back to their old ways. And what is the shepherd tasked to do? Because he knows that, if, that when sheep wander off, they're in danger of being taken out. Peter says that the enemy, our enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And who are easy targets? Those who are wandering off. And so what does the shepherd do? He comes to this brother or sister and he says, brother or sister, this, this direction that you're going in your life, this way that you're thinking, these behaviors that you're, that you're exemplifying, these are not in step with the profession of the gospel that you have made. You need to repent. You need to turn back. Seems simple enough, right? As long as the sheep appreciate such shepherding. And we're going to get to in just a moment why it's not always the case but that's what a shepherd is tasked to do that's what peter is doing to these christians who are suffering keep your conduct holy in everything that you do the third temptation that they were faced that they face that i think we face today greatly is the temptation to respond in kind to those who are slandering persecuting mocking making fun of us right that's our stance in our culture even today And that was their trouble then. And the temptation that they faced is the same one we face. The temptation to respond in the same way that that they are being treated. If people are reviling you, if people are making fun of you, then the temptation is to get on Facebook and, and let them have it, right? Yeah, that got your attention, right? That's what we do. They had the same temptation. Right? What does he say? He says in verse chapter 2, verse 1, they were being tempted to do the very behaviors that were being done to them. I don't know about you, but when somebody slanders you, what do you want to do to them? I don't even want to get on Facebook. I want to punch them in the face. Right? <laughs> I don't know about you. That's my temptation. I'd like to take them out back, and we'll talk about this, right? I want to make it Right? Right? But what does Peter say to these believers who are being slandered and lied about and abused? He says to them in 2 verse 1, so put away all malice. This is the way that these are the things being done to them. Put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Don't find yourselves going into the mud. This is not what you're supposed to do. This is not how Christians behave. And he and he says in 3 verse 9, look at what he says. He says, do not, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Then listen to what he says. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, when they slander you, when they make fun of you, when they mock you, you bless them. Now, that's not very easy, is it? That's why this Christian life that we live cannot be lived in your flesh and my flesh. You can't live that way. I don't have the ability to live that way. I just told you, I want to punch them. So what keeps us from punching them? What keeps us from the stroke of the keys on Facebook and hammering back with a great one-liner? What keeps us from that? It's the spirit of Almighty God who lives inside of us that saved us and rescued us through the blood of Christ. It's that, right? That's the only thing that will keep us in those moments from paying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. That's the only way we will bless. And Peter says to these believers who are being completely put down for their faith, he says, this is what you were called to, and you will obtain a blessing for it. There was a temptation as well in trials, number four, to doubt God. Aren't we all? tempted in that way when suffering and persecution comes your way even the suffering that's experienced in this body just this week even just the suffering of loss experienced it this morning it's been experienced this last week and Kaylee's dad her mom passing away that kind of suffering brings a temptation for us to doubt God and to misunderstand God's ways doesn't it have you ever found yourself going why What's this about? Throwing your hands in the air, going, I don't understand. I don't get it. What's going on? Can you imagine these Christians? They're facing the very same things. They're being persecuted and beat down, and there are some physical consequences that are coming to them. I mean, Nero was a maniac. He killed his own mom because she disagreed with him. And so they're facing these serious trials, and they're tempted to doubt God, and so what does Peter do? What does a good shepherd do? He comes along, and he teaches these elders. He says, here's what you do. He says, you remind them of what suffering is about. Satan intends it for harm in your life, but God is at work. God hasn't left you. He's at work, and he intends these things for good, and listen to what he's doing. He says, verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, these things, these various trials that you've been grieved by, He says, they come to you, they're necessary in fact, and he says they've come to you so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, but may be found to result in praise and glory and honor on the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, as you and I persevere and we go through trials, it tests out our faith, and therefore it's making it stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's piling up blessing and reward upon blessing and reward. And one day, when we stand before our maker, he will not forget, right? He's going to reward us for that. Isn't that beautiful? And so he's saying, press on. God is at work. Your faith is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Don't give up. Don't let go. He also says in many places, he says that when they speak against you, he says in verse, uh, chapter two, verse, uh, verse 12, he says, when they speak against you as evildoers, uh, he says, let them see your good deeds. Like be doing good. As they're persecuting you, let them see your good deeds and that's gonna result in praise to God. It's very difficult. Even for those who hate Christians, it's very difficult for them to continue to beat you down when you just keep doing good, right? I had a rule in ministry over the years that when I had lots of critics, I just sought to outdo them in good deeds, right? Those who hated me, I just sought by God's grace to say, I'm going to care for the poor. I'm going to encourage the sick. I'm going to build up the weak. I'm just going to keep serving and serving so that as they're reviling me, as they're treating me, as Paul, or Peter says, as evildoers, they may see my good deeds, and may it be to the praise of God. And so he reminds them of this. He says, be careful. In fact, he reminds them of the ultimate connection in our suffering. Five times in this letter, he says, when you suffer, he says, he makes this connection, he says, and remember, it's just as Christ suffered. When you suffer for the sake of doing good, your life looks more like Christ than maybe any other time. not that amazing? Look at it. He says it several times. In chapter two, verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. You look in, in verse, uh, uh, this is verse 16 of chapter three or 18, he says, for Christ also suffered. We live, we go through these things, we endure because Christ also suffered. In chapter four, verse one, I love this verse. He says, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh and so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Have the mind of Christ suffer like he did. He didn't revile even when he was on the cross, did he? He endured it for the sake of of obedience to the Father which is our salvation. And we should do the same. And so this is how they shepherd the flock. This is an example that Peter gives of shepherding the flock. So let me just close with these few words. One would think that seems simple enough, right? But it's not. It's not simple. First of all, let me just give a few obstacles that happen in the life of shepherds and in the culture we live that make this a very difficult thing. First of all, the culture in which we live, let me give you two things about our culture that makes it very difficult for churches and shepherds of churches to lead well. Our culture completely rejects authority. We've come to the conclusion that all authority is bad. It's not just in the culture. It's creeped into our churches. Our culture cannot stand authority, and we've completely rejected authority. And so when a shepherd comes in and, and comes to a person, a sheep that's straying off, as one who is over that sheep, who's been charged with the authority from God to care for that sheep's soul, and says, hey, brother or sister, you're out of line. We have this reaction. Even if we disagree, we have this reaction. We, we, we reject that authority. Let me give you an example of how this looks. My kids came home last year from school, and they were completely up in arms about something. Uh, the principal had said, I told them I was going to share this, but I, and my the principal said that uh, because the boys were treating the girls bad um, at lunchtime, that from the rest of the year, the girls are going to sit on one side and the guys are going to sit on the other. And my kids came home, and they're telling me about this, and they're a bit up in arms about this, right? They're like, they're just, they, they're, I could sense the, the uh, attitude that they had, and the whole school was up in arms. Like, it would just throw everything. C- people couldn't believe it. And so at that moment, as a father, I have an opportunity to teach my son or my daughter about authority, Right? And I think we're failing at this, moms and dads. And so what did I say to my son and my daughter? I said, uh, is that principle in authority over you while you're at school? Yes. They said that, yes. So if you obey what that principle has asked you to do, is it going to cause you to, to sin and disobey God? No. No then do it, and do it. You see, just because you don't like something that a person in authority says or believes, it doesn't mean you get to disrespect them, right? Authority matters. And we live in a culture that says, if I don't agree with you, if I don't, if I don't like you, then I don't have to even respect you, right? I can put you down, I don't have to listen to you. We have a, this reaction that's against authority. And yet our Bible is filled with the opposite. In fact, you want to know how serious this is for these people? Peter actually tells them, can you imagine this? He says to them in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Because all of these human institutions are there by God's grace for your benefit. He's talking about Nero, right? Nero, the guy who creates all these troubles for the Christians, he's saying, in other words, he's saying, so long as Nero is not causing you to sin against God, you should obey him. You should do what he says. That's challenging, right? And what is our temptation? To poke Nero in the face, right? (laughs) Let him have it. We don't like what Nero is doing. If he's not asking you to sin against God our Bible would tell us that you need to obey. You need to submit yourself. If that's true of Nero, just think how much more it's true of the elders in your church, right? How much more? Another challenge, I think, to this, and we'll spend not as much time on the others, uh, is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness both on the elder or shepherd's part. This keeps a shepherd from leading well. Um, Oh, by the way, I forgot one point that's really good on the last one, culture. The other problem we have in our culture is a, we have this sense of individualism, right? Individualism. I don't know if you realize this. Um, this will get some of you up in arms, but maybe I don't know. Um, it's anti-Christian. I don't know if you know that. Like, and what I mean by that is that individualism says, "I don't need anybody. I'm my own man. I can determine what's good for me and my family." I don't need you to tell me what's good for my family. So then imagine an elder coming to his sheep in the church and saying, brother or sister, you're out of step with the gospel. And what, is that, what does that person do? That person says, who the heck are you? Right? They reject authority and they also go, hey, I don't need somebody to tell me how to live my life. You know, the very nature of being a Christian is to be saved into a body of believers to whom you are willingly submitting yourself to for accountability. That's what it means to be a Christian. There is no other view in scripture of what it means. To be a Christian is to be a member of Jesus' body and to therefore submit yourself to every person in that body and to submit yourself to the direction of the leaders of that body. Right? That's a challenging concept in our day, isn't it? I can see by the looks on your faces. Like, that's challenging. That's why we need the Spirit. Prayerlessness is huge. If, we, if the elders are not praying for the body and for their own lives, if their spiritual life is, is prayerless, or if the church is not praying for them, if there's not a spiritual vitality in their own lives, this is a dangerous thing and will keep shepherds from shepherding the church like they should. Prayer, I found in my own life, is the number one indicator of whether or not I am truly dependent upon God and trusting Him with my life. Because when I, as a a leader or as a member of the body of Christ, am not praying, what I'm saying to God is, I got this. I don't need you. I got this situation. I only need you in a few things. I'll call you when I need you, right? And the reality is, we need him in everything in our lives. We need to live lives of prayer, dependent on God for everything. Another challenge to shepherding is a low priority of God's word. If God's word is not the ultimate authority for the shepherds, then it will simply be your opinion versus mine. We may as well argue about whether or not the, the Seahawks are better than the Chiefs or the Chiefs are better than the Seahawks, right? That's the way it would be, right? And we know that the Chiefs are better, but I'm just saying, I had to get a shot in there somehow. <laughs> now the sermon's over, I'm sorry. It's like totally over. So <laughs> but the reality is, is that, uh, that, that if God's word is not the foundation if we don't have this ultimate standard by which we submit ourselves to, all of us, the elders and the, sh- and the church, then we have no grounds for which to hold anyone accountable. And so a low priority of God's word will keep the shepherd from truly shepherding the flock well. And last will just be support. Um, I think that uh, this is a huge, a huge one, actually. Uh, there is no substitute for getting behind your elders and your pastor and supporting them there are things that your pastor that you don't know about that your pastor and your elders will have to do and decide that are very serious matters in people's lives. And when those elders and the pastor is out there having to do that, if they don't sense that there is a body of believers who have their back, it is detrimental to them. And I as a pastor have lived on both sides of that. Having planted a church Uh, and not having leaders at all um, those are very dangerous days very difficult days and then going from that to having trained up elders and have elders behind us as as a pastoral staff but also having a church that is behind the pastors behind their staff praying for them and so i encourage you to support and encourage nick and bill and support the leaders of this church pray for them care for them, stand with them. When somebody out in the community says something bad about your pastor, even if it's true, you can take that up with him, right? But you don't stand for somebody slandering the body of Christ and your church and your pastor, right? And vice versa, the same is true. A pastor is out there on the front lines and when somebody speaks against you, that pastor shepherds well and he puts himself in harm's way and he says, no way. This is my brother and my sister. This is a part of my own family. And you cannot, you cannot slander him or her. It's so important to have this kind of heart. This is the the heart that every elder ought to have. It's the heart of Christ. And it's absolutely vital to the health of the church. And so let us look to Christ. Let us seek him. Let us have the same heart that he has who said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in this passage. Thank you for the shepherds and the elders that you have placed over us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to support. God, I pray that as a church, that we would pray diligently for Pastor Nick and for Bill and for the other leaders of this church, that you would cause our hearts to be continually praying to be continually supporting and encouraging and building up the leaders of this church. And Father, I pray that the result of that would be a tremendous amount of fruit, that every person around this area would see the kind of love and care and support that's in this church and that they would would know by this kind of love and care and support, they would know that we belong to you, that they would know that there is only one God he's above all gods and he's worthy of all of our praise and admiration and so god i pray and thank you for these kinds of shepherds create this kind of heart in every one of us here today and we pray this in your name amen